This is the Building Management Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. As people become more comfortable in the home building automation space, they want to be able to take this commercial as well. We're starting to ask that question, where is my water coming from and what's the quality of it? While we are not recession-proof, it is a recession-insulated industry, so that regardless of the ups and downs in the stock market, if these manufacturers, these plants, and these entities want to stay open, they need water. Renovations complete. Let's enter the building. All right, welcome to the Building Management Podcast presented by MarketScale. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you all so much for tuning in for this episode of the podcast. Today's episode is going to be about building for the future of the industry of building management. And uh, the job of a building manager has evolved as technology and other systems have become more complex and they allow you to do more things. But also uh, with each advancement in technology, it creates a couple of questions that you have to consider. In previous generations, individuals uh, could kind of just fall into this line of work from other places in the industry, but that's just not the case anymore. And as industry leaders look to younger generations to begin to carry this mantle forward, numerous questions have arisen. Are young people interested in building management? How can we educate them about jobs that are available in the industry? And are they getting the appropriate education necessary uh, to eventually take over these positions as building managers in the future? So on this episode of the Market Scale Building Management Podcast, we're going to talk to three individuals who are uniquely qualified to speak on the future of the building management industry. Uh, the first of which is going to be James McDonald. He's the technology marketing manager for Chem Aqua, and uh, he's also the founder of Industrial Water Week. So he's looking to create basically a week's worth of holidays around his specific industry in building management management and in doing so build a little hype for the industry itself and try to promote what it is they do so people have a better understanding of what the job entails and what a career would look like in that particular industry. Next we're going to talk to Regina Ford Cahill. She's the chairperson of construction facilities management and real estate practice programs for the Pratt Institute in New York. We're going to talk to her a little bit about what it looks like to educate young people on what exactly the industry does and how young people are being educated in today's environment. So I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation just to hear from her on the front lines of what exactly it's like to educate young people on the industry. And finally, we're going to finish our conversations today talking to Adam Bernhardt, the Vice President and General Manager of Peloton Commercial Real Estate. He's responsible for all aspects of property management at the Bank of America Plaza in downtown Dallas. And we're going to talk to him a little bit about how his job has changed over the years and how it's evolved uh, in his time in the industry. So that's a little preview of what's coming up on the podcast today. Coming up Next is that conversation with James McDonald. He's going to be talking to my colleague, Daniel Litwin, and they're going to talk about Industrial Water Week and get into why it was created in the first place and also talk about the need for fresh faces and fresh blood in the industry. So that conversation with James McDonald, technology marketing manager for Kim Aqua, is coming up next. I'm excited to dive into something we have never spoken about on the podcast, and that's because it hasn't existed until this year, which is Industrial Water Week. Exactly. Yes, I am very jazzed about diving into this. Mm -hmm. Pun sort of intended there, right? (laughs) Although I don't think you want to dive into untreated water. Yeah, no, you would not. Probably not. (laughs) But I'll take all the puns you want to throw at me. Perfect, perfect. (laughs) So let's start with a brief history of... 
Industrial Water Week in general. Why did you decide that this was something that needed to be founded? And what sort of led you to that moment of, hey, I'm going to just take the initiative and put something together like this for my community? Right. Well, I, um, by trade, I'm a chemical engineer, and and I, I work at, as an industrial water um, professional, and we deal with industry, whether it be a manufacturer, a commercial industry, or what have you, but we deal with water for them. And unfortunately, no one knows what we do. Our wives have no idea. Our husbands have no idea what we do. They, th- they think we deal with pools. Our, our, our friends have no idea. Even our customers know they need us, but they don't always understand what, what we do. And so there's, there's an awareness factor there we, we need to build. Another item as well is our, our community as, as, as a profession is, is aging. We have a, a lot of folks retiring, and we need fresh blood. We need fresh people who have an interest in this industry. And unfortunately, the only way you get into this industry Industry is if you fall into it or you're born into it. And I happen to fall into it. And so we, we, we need fresh faces. We need people with passion in this industry as well. So th- those were, were two big items I was thinking of when I was thinking, how do we, how do we, we communicate wh- what we do? How can we share better what, what yeah. we do? So I was looking around, you know, and there, there's Donut Day as a holiday. Delicious. Yes, exactly. There, there is Star Wars Day. My favorite. On May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. Which is coincidentally also No Pants Day. Okay. Which I don't know if there's a connection or not. Yeah, but. I probably won't ever combine the <laughs> no, two, no, but we'll no, see. No, no, no. <laughs> there's a Potted Plant Day. Okay. There's there's Very a green. middle sibling day. There's there's a chemistry I think week. There is a a world water day, which okay. is I think May twenty second. But that's that's all the water, not just industrial water. And so we we didn't have our own holiday there. There's even an engineering week. So I was like, you know, the since since the dawn of time, we've apparently missed out on the opportunity of having an industrial water something. Right. So I, I, I host a group on LinkedIn. It's called Industrial Water Treatment. I have over 13,000 members in 143 countries. And so I asked them, you know, are there holidays for, for industrial water treatment? And none of those members um, came up with a holiday. One guy said we, we, we should celebrate it every day. Hmm. That seemed a little, little too often right. <laughs> to me. And, but we, we spent our entire career, you know, five days a week, more than eight hours a day doing this. So one day didn't seem long enough. So I was like, well, how about a week? And not only a week, how about a week of themed days as well? So we, uh, we have um, pre-treatment Monday, boiler Tuesday, cooling Wednesday, wastewater Thursday, and careers Friday. And I ended with careers Friday as, as a wrap-up because what I'm hoping when people celebrate this holiday, because this, th- well, this is not my holiday. It's not my, my parent company's holiday. It's not any company or trade group's holiday at all because I was thinking who should start a holiday like this. If it comes from a company, if it comes from a trade group, their competitors aren't going to want to celebrate this holiday. Right. For, for, for it to be truly an international holiday, it must start from an individual. Right. And I was like, why not me? You know, I have that 13,000 member audience on my group. I have my, my 16,000 connections on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I'm a published author. You know, you, you Google things for water and odds are at some point you'll find my name there. So I, I, have, the, I have the name out there within my industry and, and the recognition of where maybe if someone were to do it, why not me? So I, I, I pushed it out there, and we'll, we'll see what, what happens with it. But I'm really hoping when people celebrate it that they, they um, number one, start on social media. 
and that they tag their pictures, their selfies, whatever, with hashtag Industrial Water Week. So that by the time we get to the end of the week, someone who's interested in a career in this can then, then either search for or click on those hashtags, and all of a sudden they have this glorious picture of what it means to be within our profession of industrial water treatment. Amazing. And if you had to sum that up, what do you think it does mean to be in the profession of industrial water treatment? That's kind of a loaded question. It is. To you, you know, what makes you so passionate about it that you wanted to create this holiday for the entire industry? I'm passionate about it on many levels. One one is that um, it, it... it is something that's needed within industry and our world of the 330 million cubic miles of water we have on this planet. Only about two and a half million cubic miles of that is fresh water from lakes and rivers that we all walking around this planet used to live. And 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 from that, of all the water which is withdrawn, 19% of that is industrial water. And so we, we have a, an environmental message of helping manage properly that 19% across the globe um, that we, we, we can manage with the science and technology and the ideas we have. So the, there's that driving me as well. The other thing is it is certainly a good way to earn a living to feed your family and to feed yourself. And and I, th- I think um, of all the industries out there, it's, it, it is a, a solid industry to be in because while we are not recession-proof, it is a recession insulated industry so that regardless of the ups and downs in the stock market, if, if these manufacturers, the, these plants and these in- entities want to stay open, they need water and they need water treatment to help them manage. This, right. This and that's water. not really going to change anytime soon. Not going to change. No. Right. Probably not ever. Not. Yeah. Right. Probably ever. Yeah. So I think creating something like Industrial Water Week really hits on, I think, three main points. You have the education side of it. You have the community side of it, and then you have the career side of it. So I think all three of those are really important, and they all come from a different place, I think. So I'd like to dive into each one. So let's start with the education side of it. So why do you think it's so important to educate the public on what people within industrial water treatment do? Mm-hmm. I think it's important. So, so so number one, the public who work in industry understand the importance of what we do and the fact that we are saving them money and we're, and we're, we're minimizing their impact upon the environment within this field. And we, we save them money by by managing corrosion, by managing scale, by, by managing the amount of water they use, and, by, and all that's all tied to energy as well. But bottom line are the dollar signs. And so we, we, we save them money with that. So education on their side and community outreach on their side, I think that's important for us. Yeah. That's key, yes. And then, and then on the flip side, I'm hoping the other educational aspect of this is that Industrial Water Week will inspire our own members within our community to learn something new. And having the theme days give, give, gives them you know, um, a focus for those days as well. So I'm hoping they, they use this as, as an excuse to learn internally as well. Right. And... I mean, I think it's a profession that often doesn't get the spotlight, and at the same time, it's so essential to to business operations, to just healthy operation in general, right? And so if that community isn't being represented, I think you could have – I'm sure there are days where it's like 
the employees that are going to work every day and doing this really important work feel like, well, no one knows what I'm doing. Even the people that we're selling our services to have no idea what we're doing. And, and that can be frustrating. Yes. And and, and, and that's why communities are so important. Um, that's why our, our, our trade groups are so important because all, all of us practitioners come there to meet and we're with our own brethren and we, we, we can talk about this. My industrial water treatment group, um, I swear there are people out there who wait for my next question of the day. I do, I do a question of the day yeah. most days, and I've done. I just reached my one thousandth question of the day. Never asking the same question twice because I track them all in Excel. You know, nice. I'm an engineer, so of, of course. course I'm going to do that. <laughs> and so, but 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 our job can be a lone ranger type of, of job because we're out there on our own. The home office may be in, in, in Irving, Texas, or right here where, where we are, but we have guys across the country. And so you're, you're managing your own little business at that point. So having a community could come together and giving them a reason to think about these things together, very important. Definitely. And I mean, like you said, it sounds like your LinkedIn group is one of few spots where people in this community can come together and get content that is directed towards them and for them and represents what they do on a daily basis. And that's so important, I think, you know, having that community where you can interact with people that do the same thing that you do. I mean, that's why forums are so important. That's why Reddit and Reddit threads are so important that people can subscribe to content they want to see. So why do you think it's important on the social and sort of engagement side of things for people within the industry to be connected. I mean, I'm sure there is a, I mean, there's social gratification there, but there's also, I think, a, an innovation side of it too. There is, yes, there, there is. Um, there, there, there are, like you said, very few forums. And so my, my forum is very public, but also there are other trade organizations like the Association of Water Technologies or the International Water Conference or the Cooling Te- Technologies Institute, or there's even a podcast out there. There's a Scaling Up um, podcast that, that a, friend, a friend, friend of mine does. All these are ways that we can connect as a community and ask questions, but they allow us to ask questions that, that maybe we can't ask other people around us within our community. We can learn other methods. We can learn about other tests. We can learn learn about other other technologies. We can float ideas and get them shot down or not shot down at the same same time because the folks aren't shy. These guys in our industry are into sales as well. So most of them are not shy about expressing their opinion. Right. And, you know, I think that sort of communication can lead to problem solving as well on a really active basis. I mean, I know this isn't quite exactly what you and your industry do. But I mean, for example, I read in the news uh, yesterday that in Detroit, they turned off water to the public schools because there were high levels of copper in the water. And that's because of old infrastructure that hasn't been updated and they have a lack of funds. And so it got me thinking, you know, what if there was a community around the people, a really active social community around the people that go in and fix that plumbing, right? The, the building managers, the facility operators that could come together as a voice and encourage right, uh, local municipalities, um, state governments to give these schools the funding, right? Because yeah. the water is important. And I think that is sort of what something like industrial water we can do is unite people in a social way that they can then bounce ideas off of each other and be like, oh, you noticed that problem too? So did I. Let's come together. We're passionate about this and make a change happen. Absolutely. And, and the word the word active is, is key to that as well, because I found with, with, with my community, I, I, I um, moderate that the key to a, a, a successful community is being persistent 
and, and continuously adding content and continuously keeping it active and moving forward. Definitely. So I have the the Industrial Water Week community I do on LinkedIn. Also, there's there's the Water Network as well, and they have an industrial water treatment and reuse group I also moderate. Um, too. So um, there's there, there are communities I'm trying to keep active out there, but, but I'm just one person, but there are other people. Right. Yeah. No, it's got to be a team effort, right? Um, one person isn't going to be able to institute a, a national holiday, right? Mm-hmm. But it can yes. take one person like yourself to be the catalyst. It takes a spark. It yes. takes a spark, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So the other side of this we haven't hit on too deep yet is the career side of it. You did mention it earlier, but there is a retirement wave coming through. There really is, yes. Pun, pun also slightly intended yes, there. Right? Yes, I love the puns. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, there is that um, trend that people are starting to retire in this industry now. Either they're coming up on it or some of the some of the best people within industrial water treatment are leaving. And there isn't a lot of career education on, hey, you got to join this career because it pays well, we're passionate about it, look at all the great social environmental change you can make. And yeah, that is lacking. So how do you feel like Industrial Water Week will help push career education? And why is it so important to have people that are passionate about what they're doing in industrial water treatment? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that as, as people across the world make this holiday their own holiday, they, they will use this as, as an excuse to go out and speak to their schools and, and, and universities and, and family even about it too. You know, I've, I've, I've done several um, talks at, at colleges and, 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 and universities about what we're doing. And there, there's just a wide range of, of jobs you can have with within this career. You you don't have to be the guy out in the field every day. You can be the guy designing the equipment they have. There's a wide range. You don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to be a chemist. You don't have to be a microbiologist either. There's so many things you can you can do with within this this industry. So I'm hoping they use this as as an excuse as well. I'm hoping the the various um, trade groups do too because the Association of Water Technologies at, at www.awt.org um, they they have a, a STEM outreach program and so. There are efforts being made, but hopefully together, you know, we can, we can, I can give an excuse for them to reach out to schools for this holiday. And this holiday is not mine. I'm hoping that, that eventually my name dissolves away into, into, into the history books right. and that, you know, it becomes everyone's holiday because I don't want, want it to be about me and my personality and my personal brand or anything like that, that um, eventually I become more forgotten and it just becomes something we do within the industry just because everyone's always done it that way. Right. And, you know, on this topic of careers, I think that, you know, part of the issue that affects industrial water treatment is also just this national issue of labor shortages, right? And I think that the fact that there isn't a lot of education around career choices within industrial water treatment makes everyone think that, right, it is only hard labor, like that it's just a labor trade. And therefore, you know, since there is a labor shortage, people aren't going into those kind of jobs as frequently, um, then industrial water treatment is affected. But like you said, there are so many options beyond just operating the facilities that could be perfect for someone with a creative mindset. Like you said, designing a lot of the infrastructure, designing, um, you know, the way the, like doing the, the chemical treatment, you know, someone with that creative scientific mind might want to get into it. But that conversation isn't being had right now. So you're, you're, you're right, because the, the funnest part of our job is when we go in there and they see us as a member of, of their team. Yeah. 
not just some, someone in there who's kicking drums and whatever else and, and doing doing the pinks and blues, we call them, the test we do yeah. in there as well. But someone who's in there and they've seen it as a member of the team, we learn their process, we learn the, their, their uses. And really, being an industrial water treatment professional can oftentimes be like, what's the show, um, How It's Made? Almost be yeah. like being in an episode of How It's Made every single day because you get to see some some of the coolest processes out there. You you get to go behind the scenes. When, when you go in, 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 into the penthouse of a building, it's, it's not the mansion on top, on top of a building you expect it to be. Right. It's, it's a mechanical room <laughs> yeah. in there. You, you get to go behind the scenes at museums and and, and at Disneyland, you know, and, and, and things like that. You get to learn how the things are made. One of the most fascinating processes I've, I've seen out there was insulation, how that's made. And there I was standing up like on the third or fourth floor, and this molten glass was pouring through this tiny little tube above my head, and it's like laser-like stream, orange stream coming down. It was beautiful That's coming so cool. down. And it would it would land, it was flowing down by gravity, and it would land in what looked like a cake pan. Yeah. And this cake pan was was rotating at hundreds of RPM, and the sides of this cake pan had these itty-bitty holes in it. So this molten glass was being spun out through these holes, making this cobweb-like Fiberglass, or wow. you know, uh, uh, insulation, and then, and then as, as soon as it got past there, this tremendous amount of air was being sucked down, and it was cooling it at the same time. And they were spraying it with it with these binders, and then then it landed on this conveyor belt that that was porous, so air could flow through it, so the the insulation would build up on the on, on the conveyor belt. And right. it wasn't just the the um, the glass that that they had to know about, but because the binders were these organic molecules and sugars, they also had to worry about cooking chemistry as well because the heat was cooking it. And then with all of this, there was a water side of it. So you get to learn all of this, and, and then you learn how water impacts this to cool things down and the wastewater it takes to, to make this happen. And in, the, in this instance, the wastewater in all these pits had such a microbiological issue that the entire plant stank. It was a horrible, mm. horrible smell. <laughs> and, and the byproducts were acidic, and the water was pH was dropping in the water, and it, it, it was causing corrosion issues. And so you got to come in there and discover what was causing this come up with, with a solution, and then see how that solution actually removed the smell from this plant, raise the pH to, to, um, um, and, um, to inhibit corrosion, and et cetera. So you got not only to dive in to a How It's Made episode, but you got to understand how what you do relates to it and come up with with a solution. Right. And I find that beautiful and very creative as, yeah. as well. No, I mean, just the way you described it, had me hooked. Yeah, so yeah there, there you I'd go. Like, <laughs> like being able to be a part of a process like that on a daily basis and encouraging the people that do that to see it in a creative and beautiful way is empowering. But then also communicating that to the rest of the public. Like, look what these people are doing. Look how great it is. That's look the hard part. Look how beautiful it is. And that, that, I agree. That is the hard that part. That is the hard part because in, engineers by, by um, typically are not writers. And a lot of these these guys are very good speakers, but but speaking and writing are two, are two, are two different things. Yeah. And then then finding the time and the venue to to, to put this in uh, is, is another issue. So you know I, I'm kind of a unique engineer in that I love writing and I love finding ways to go and communicate what I know. I love sharing what I know with folks. So I have found the, these various venues are doing this, and hopefully Industrial Water Week is another venue where we we can share this together. And even if you're not the best writer. You know, write what you know, and 
even if you don't want to write, a picture's worth a thousand words. So that's where I'm hoping that, that the power of social media and pictures and hashtagging with Industrial Water Week is going to pay off in the end. Yeah, agreed. I mean, just that community aspect, I think, is going to be very special. And I'm excited to see what happens with Industrial Water Week. It's around the corner, October 1st through 5th? 1st through 5th, exactly. Okay. The first full week of, of October every year. Is the Wonderful. Plan. And what was the decision behind that time frame? I was I was looking at, well, number one, I came up with this plan in January, so I wanted to give folks plenty of time right. to, to, to think about it. And um, because there's such, such a wide range within our field of equipment and things you deal with, boilers and cooling towers and wastewater, I wanted a time period where all of that would be fresh in various pe- people's minds. And so the October timeframe, fallish t- t- timeframe is right right where in much of the world, when you have seasons in the, in the part of the world, things are changing. And so you're moving over for, 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 from perhaps cooling to boilers or vice versa if, you, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. So it's a time where all of what we deal with is hopefully in someone's mind. Yeah. Great. I mean, perfect timing. Yeah, that's essential. Well, Let's end this podcast on sort of a forecast note. Uh, What do you hope to really get out of this first Industrial Water Week? Um, What kind of content do you hope that the professionals in the industry share? Yep. Well, I do know this uh, This is the first one. And so a lot of folks are going to go and, and feel it out, you know, to see what it is and to see if this this is just some some company trying, trying to make up a holiday right. or, or not to see, you know, if it's biased or not or what have you. But what I'm hoping is that as they witness this first one and they see their colleagues across the world sharing what what they know, either writing articles or just writing a blurb about what they did that day and posting pictures and hashtagging and all of that, I'm hoping that, that they see the community that shares there. I'm hoping they, they see the power of, of, of Careers Friday as well in, in enticing people to go into, into our industry. And I'm hoping that after this first year, um, we we see in the second year more trade organizations, more, 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 more publications getting on board as well. Thanks to James McDonald for joining us on the Building Management Podcast today. Coming up next is my conversation with Regina Ford Cahill. She's the chairperson of Construction and Facilities Management and Real Estate Practice Programs for the Pratt Institute in New York. And one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to her was I wanted to ask somebody on the front lines of education in this field what it's like to talk to students who could potentially be choosing their career path and how exactly she goes through explaining what it is that people in building management do and getting it away from maybe some of the stigmas that people have in their mind about what building management is. So we have a conversation about that as well as how technology is changing the way that they teach building management in school. So all of that is coming up next on the Market Scale Building Management Podcast. All right, joining me now on the Building Management Podcast is Regina Ford Cahill. She's the chairperson of Construction, Facilities Management, and Real Estate Practice Programs for the Pratt Institute in New York. Regina, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to get uh, more into your story about how you got involved in this industry in the first place. Uh, What's your history in the building and facilities management industry? Uh, So like many of of us in my generation, we kind of fell into uh, facilities management um, in that uh, I was working as an occupational therapist uh, and and then I worked in economic development and then I've worked as a facility manager for uh, 
to the Prussia Park Alliance in Brooklyn. Uh, and basically every job that I took, I ended up taking care of the facilities. And then at some point I said, you know, I really should go back and get my master's degree. So I'm actually a Pratt graduate with a master's in facilities management. Um, so since that time, the uh, career and professional path has really changed in that um, people can't just come out of the boiler room and become um, the facility manager of a large commercial building, say, in New York City, that there really needs to be some uh, good training in terms of uh, facility systems, uh, computer literacy, financial literacy, um, and sort of being tailored to a more corporate environment, if you will. And so that's why there's the advent of um, educational programs for facilities management. There's still a need for the entry-level folks, but as you get further up in the corporation, you really need to be able to talk to the C-suite. And so that's why um, there are many more programs coming online for facilities management, both uh, in the United States and uh, across the world. And you mentioned the need now for people that do what you do, educating people in this field. Are you seeing there? Uh, are you seeing an interest from younger generations in joining this kind of work, or is there a little bit of um, convincing, showing people, hey, this is these are the routes that you can take, and these are some of the different uh, jobs that you could end up doing uh, with this particular education? There's a little bit of convincing because in the sort of built environment, if you will, everyone uh, sort of looks at architecture and understands architecture. But when it comes to the disciplines of, say, construction management and facilities management, people always uh, have images of the tradespeople working, um, say, in the iron workers area or working uh, as the, you know, the boiler and HVAC uh, specialist. So um, it does take a little bit of convincing. Um, once you start talking about the career path that you might have from getting certifications in the various building systems to certification in facilities management to an associate degree to a bachelor's degree to a master's degree and then you start talking especially to parents about um, what the entry-level salaries are um, it's very easy to convince them to see that this this is not a blue-collar job it's a uh, a white-collar job and that you're the manager of a number of people doing a number of different things um, in a building um, to make people uh, comfortable and effective in their workplace and let them do their job while you take care of the environment. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think if you if you show people the pathway for uh, for students to no longer be living with their parents, but being self sufficient and showing, hey, here's a here's a an actual path that you can follow that shows you how here's here's upward mobility and here's what you could eventually become if you take this path. I think that's a really good selling point uh, for these types of uh, of jobs and positions in this industry. Absolutely, and it, and it also uh, lends itself to folks who have some business acumen and certainly are good communicators, um, but don't want to sit at a desk and crunch numbers and say, like, a corporate business world. They like to be out. They like to be solving problems um, across the board. So it's, it's a great sort of, you know, I, we sort of joke about if you have ADHD, it's a great job to be in because every day is different. <laughs> um, every hour you can be pulled away to do something else and you, you really get to, to solve problems and make things work for people. Um, I, I don't know if your group is familiar with the International Facility Management Association, um, which is kind of the organization in the United States that um, really focuses on credentialing and educating um, the workforce. 
um, and I'm the chair of the academic uh, committee for the IFMA Foundation, uh, which has really got a focus on education, both with getting more programs up and running, getting the programs accredited according to our academic standards, and also um, there's a new, what is referred to as GWI, the Global Workforce Initiative, which actually tackles from the entry-level point of getting um, young people and young adults um, hip to FM, if you will, um, and get, getting them certified in entry-level jobs and then creating that pathway um, through, through the whole career path of getting to a master's level and being somebody who can really communicate with the C-suite and talk about doing financial and strategic planning, asset management, um, you know, talking about being an environmentally responsible building operator. Um, so it, it really can run the full gamut. Um, and people can enter the field at any given level uh, mm -hmm. of that spectrum. Absolutely. That's that's really interesting to hear about. And um, uh, th my last question I want to ask is uh, is about technology. You mentioned it a little bit earlier uh, when you were talking about education, but uh, how much of a challenge is it to keep curriculum uh, current with how much technology is emerging nowadays? Is, is technology moving forward at a rate where uh, you're updating curriculum year after year based on uh, new changes? Well, the fundamental... Um Principles are still employed. It's just that there are different software platforms and different kind of bells and whistles, if you will, that help you do your job. So, you know, you basically went from an Excel spreadsheet uh, doing asset inventory and plugging it all in to now being able to go into a room with a camera who will take a 3D drawing with all the specs and itemize um the equipment in that room, you can tag equipment with uh, URL codes, um, and before uh, before you know QRL, I'm sorry, before you're done, um, you have a visual uh, inventory of what's going on in the building, when when something was last repaired or replaced, um, how much it's going to cost over time, uh, what's your return on investment. So the the fundamental principles of what you do is the same, it's just the tools are rapidly changing. That is Regina Ford Cahill, the Chairperson of Construction, Facilities Management, and Real Estate Practice Programs for the Pratt Institute in New York. Regina, thank you so much for joining me on the Market Scale Building Management Podcast today. Oh, well, thank you very much for reaching out to us and uh, tell your friends it's a great career. All right, the final segment of the Building Management Podcast today comes in the form of a profile interview, and today we're going to take a look at Adam Bernhardt. He's the Vice President and General Manager of Peloton Commercial Real Estate, and he actually is responsible for all aspects of property management at Bank of America Plaza, which is where MarketScale is located. He joined me in studio to talk about how he got into this industry in the first place, what excites him about his job, and some of the technology that's moving the industry forward. I think it's a really interesting conversation you're going to really enjoy. So coming up next, Adam Bernhardt, Vice President and General Manager of Peloton Commercial Real Estate. So I'm curious just about your personal story, how you ended up in uh, commercial real estate and building management where you are today. How did you take this path to get to where you are right now? Uh, before I started, I didn't even know about building management as a career path. And so I was just seeking a entry-level management position uh, sh shortly after getting out of business school. Um, turned out that uh, 
my resume got passed between a couple of people, and uh, so I interviewed for a position and landed it. So it's been a good mix of my skills and abilities, uh, but it's not something that I sought out in the first place. Do you think that someone could do that today? Uh, start off just you know generally interested in business, but not necessarily interested in building management, and then kind of work their way into it, or is it a more specialized field nowadays where you need to have studied it in the past? I believe that uh, just about anybody could get into it. You need a good business skill set. You need to be diverse in the things that you do. And if you're a creative problem solver and uh, maybe even a little controlling because you have to watch certain things for other people, um, then, yeah, you can get into it. You don't have to be specialized in building management. That's one of the things about it is it's so diverse in all the skills that um, you need in order to be effective in property management. So what skills in particular? You mentioned being flexible, uh, liking to interact with people a little bit. What skills do you think in particular have made you uh, successful in this particular position? Uh, great question. Part of it um, is you have to have good interpersonal relationship skills. You have to be a great communicator. My wife's a CPA, and the less the phone rings, the happier <laughs> she is. Uh, for me, I like to be social a little bit, get out and visit with people. So you have to be able to sit down with a CEO and explain about the policies and procedures for a building operations and how to relate those best to their business needs. But then you also have to work with vendors and third parties, everything from plumbers and janitorial people to uh, technicians working on HVAC equipment and architects as well. So I think when people think building management, they think this isn't a, a glamorous industry or a glamorous job necessarily at times. And, and I wonder just if there's somebody who's interested in getting into the industry, getting into doing what you do, uh, how would you go about approaching that conversation with a young person? Uh, the first thing I would say is to consider what your skills and abilities are and what it is you like to do. If you're a creative person uh, that wants to make art, uh, you're going to have a limited scope in the ability uh, to be influential in property management uh, because you're kind of given direction from property owners saying this is what I want to accomplish and then also from the, the tenants themselves what their business needs are and so you have to really work to provide a service to those two different groups. Uh, so you have to be someone who is more focused on being able to provide great service and take someone else's vision and implement it than you do about creating a whole new vision. Uh, so that is one, but then being a great problem solver, working out how you can accomplish things within those parameters that you're giving is uh, a great asset that makes uh, some property managers much better than others. In your 22 years now that you've been doing this, we've seen technology increase in a lot of different areas. Uh, how has that had an impact on what you do specifically? Uh, quite a bit. So now it's about the systems. I mean, when you started out, we had twice the staff that we do now. And just like any industry, we're uh, maximizing resources as much as possible every day. So our, our overall staff size has reduce, reduced greatly. Um, and so because of that, you have to be more effective. And the way to be more effective is put in place good policies and procedures and systems that automate a lot of the work that we have to do, like AP processing and uh, the way that uh, systems, HVA systems talk to it to to itself to set the parameters for controlling a building's envelope and the way that um, uh, the services are provided uh, so the more complex uh, the systems become uh, the more they need to be able to uh, be watched and handle everything automatically. And then you can focus on those little outlier issues, the 5 to 10% of issues uh, that need the face-to-face uh, -face and immediate attention. How do you see things continuing to evolve in the future? Are there any innovations maybe that you've seen that you think 
uh, this could really change how we do, you know, building management nowadays. You know, this this could really, uh, in the next five to ten years, really really alter the game. Yeah, some of the so we're getting to where now we not only have a complex system that runs the HVAC system, but also systems across a building platform talk to each other uh, so that the whole system can anticipate things. I get in my wife's car and use my fob. It came with two fobs. I get in with my fob and the seat automatically adjusts to the position that I want it. Well, now we're talking about HVAC systems and elevators. I walk in the door. There's, there can be facial recognition to say there's Adam and Adam wants to get on this elevator and go to this floor and when he gets there, he wants his office at this temperature and the systems can talk to each other and it'll be all set up to be able to accommodate me as an individual, not just me as an employee of a company and what those companies' needs are. So we're starting to refine and create more and more individual hospitality uh, to compete for talent. That allows our um, tenants to compete for talent and therefore they want to be in a building that makes it easier for them to retain their employees and not retrain. That makes a lot of sense. I'd never actually thought about it that way. Uh, what What do you enjoy the most about what you do on a regular basis, and what excites you about your job? I think it is the um, the diversity of it all and the uh, uh, the problem solving that happens. It, it's it's um, you know it's competitive environment. Uh, uh, tenants get to choose. Companies get to choose where they office. Uh, they pay good money in order to be in in a certain location and receive services. Um, so being able to fight in that environment to make one product better than the other product across the street, um, it gets my competitive juices flowing. But it's also I do get to visit with people, but I also and solve their individual problems, provide a service. I'm a service provider at Nature in my core, and I get to lay out a plan. So my controlling nature gets to lay out a budget for a year and say this is what we're going to do and then I get to shoot for those targets and uh, implement projects and uh, make improvements in a property overalls. How does managing a property like um, like the Bank of America Plaza, you know, where you have a building which requires certain needs but then also, you know, several surface lots and then also um, also a parking garage. How do each of those different facilities present different challenges? That's a great question. Uh, part of the issue that we, in order to accomplish it, is we have to kind of divide and uh, get specialists in certain areas. We hire a third-party uh, security provider to take care of our security needs at the building. We hire a third-party parking management company to help us with the specific needs of the parking garage and the surface lots. And so we break it up, um, not into silos because they always over-relate, but we have specialists in each area that help us um, put together the best plan operationally to work uh, for the property's overall needs for the ownership. Well, I got to say, it's a pretty great place to work. So I appreciate all of the uh, all of the work that you do. We're glad you're here. We appreciate having you here. Well, thank you so much. That is Adam Bernhardt. He's the VP and General Manager of Peloton Commercial Real Estate. Thank you for joining me on the Buildings Management Podcast today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, that is all for this episode of the Market Scale Building Management Podcast. Thank you so much to my three guests, James McDonald, Regina Ford Cahill, and Adam Bernhardt for joining me for this episode of the show. As always, if you enjoyed this content, you can find more on our website, marketscale.com. And also feel free to share this with your friends, family, and other people in the industry uh, who you think might enjoy the podcast. Feel free to send this their way as well. Thank you again for listening to this podcast. I've been your host, Tyler Curran. Until next time, 